Good evening, all. The uh, January meeting of the Finance Committee, and uh, I will uh, meeting to order. Uh, Rana, can you give us a roll call, please? Trustee Banerjee. Trustee Esteen. Here. Sorry. <laughs> That's OK, thank you. Uh, Trustee Fox. Here. And Trustee Splendoria. Here. We have a quorum, thank you. Thank you very much, Rana. There is one item of a public uh, comment. Uh, so Dr. Mantuani, you have uh, three minutes. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? We can, thank you. All right. My name is Daniel Mantuani, and I've been an emergency physician at Highland Hospital since 2007. Uh, I would like to speak to the Finance Committee today to address mine and my colleagues' concerns about the lack of socially responsible investing options at AHS's reti or prudential retirement accounts. Uh, this year, Oak Care was disbanded and we joined East Bay Medical Group. Under Oak Care, we had Schwab PCRA personal retirement accounts, which had zero fee trades. We can invest in anything, mutual funds, ETFs, individual stocks. And this gave us the freedom uh, and choice to invest in corporations that we did not find morally corrupt. However, with AHS Prudential, we can only choose from 32 mutual funds. Uh, to make investment choices, we're given a 98-page document describing these funds, but they only list the top five to 10 holdings in each of these mutual funds, and this represents less than 20% of each fund's value. By Prudential's own words, none of these funds can be considered socially responsible funds. Uh, back in September on the 21st, as members of the Highland Green team, uh, we met Mr. Moy of a Retirement Investment Committee to find out how AHS chooses the funds in these portfolios. From that meeting, the RIC could not tell us a complete list of holdings in each of these funds, or even if certain sectors such as firearms or tobacco were included or excluded. Even Prudential won't give us a list of these holdings, so ultimately we had to look up uh, the makeup of these through a third party Morningstar reports, which gives SRI grades, socially responsible investment grades for each of the mutual fund holdings based on investments in civilian firearms, for-profit prisons, tobacco, fossil fuel, deforestation, gender equality, and military industries that some of our community may now want to support. Only one of the funds did not have a grade of D and F in these subjects. Half of the holdings contained tobacco stocks. The majority scored poorly on fossil fuel and deforestation. What is most disturbing to me are the investments in civilian firearms in a prison industrial complex, which disproportionately affects disadvantages, disadvantaged communities of color, including our own community. I see firearms injuries almost daily at work, and it disturbs me to the core that a public safety net hospital and a trauma center includes these sectors in our portfolio. Only one uh, of one fund even contains companies involved in the manufacture of cluster bombs and landmines, which are banned in over 100 uh, countries. Um, I find it very disturbing that Highland Physicians and the Retirement Investment Committee are supporting these industries without even knowing it. And there are no ethical investing alternatives within the 32 funds that are offered. There's not a single mutual fund in our portfolio list that I'm comfortable supporting. I find this antithetical to the mission statement and core values of our hospital and community. I compiled a list of these findings of the mutual fund portfolios and send it to the RIC and the East Bay Medical Group's newly formed HR community in early December, and I have yet to hear back. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Montuani. Uh, any other uh, public comment, Rhonda? Okay, no, moving. 
Uh, the uh, first item on the agenda for this meeting is the election of the chair for the committee. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the chair, uh, any of uh, the trustees on the committee can serve as the chair. The chair basically is tasked with uh, running the meetings um, according to the general rules of procedure uh, and then coordinating with the uh, staff uh, liaisons, uh, our CFO and COO on meeting agenda and other items. So. So at this point, I'll open it up. Uh, trustees may nominate another trustee or they themselves may volunteer to serve as chair of the committee. Don't everyone speak at once. I'll nominate anyone but me. <laughs> I, I would, actually I feel the same way, so. Then I will nominate uh, Trustee Eston. I'll second that. I'll second. And Thanks, do, you accept, <laughs> do you accept the nomination, Trustee Eston? Uh, yes, I am going to lean on you, uh, Kimberly and Louise, heavily. Okay, well, let's vote first just to make sure. Uh, uh, so we have a uh, nomination of Trustee Esteen. It's been seconded in all those in favor. And if we could do this by roll call, Rana, please. Absolutely. Um, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. <laughs> Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Splendorio. Yes. It is unanimous. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. So, Trustee Asin, I will turn it over uh, to you. Uh, the next item on the agenda is the uh, approval of the minutes from the last Finance Committee meeting. All right, do we have any objections to approving the minutes from the last Finance Committee meeting? Right, so can we get a motion to approve? So move. A second. All right, should we do a roll call vote, Rana? Or can we just uh, go back? Uh, you have to. So if we have to do a roll call. All right. All right. Trustee Banerjee. Yes. Trustee Esteen. Yes. Trustee Fox. Yes. Trustee Splendorio. I shall abstain because I wasn't there, and that's typically what I do when I'm not at a meeting. All right, the, the minutes pass uh, three eyes and one abstain. All right, so we need to move to the agenda. I actually don't have it open yet. Excuse me, guys. I didn't realize I'd be chairing this meeting. Forgive me for not being fully prepared. Uh, do you mind telling me what's next on the agenda, Mike, since I know you have it open? Yeah. Let me help you out here. So our uh, next item on the agenda is item C, uh, operating reports. And so the first item, uh, the chief financial operating reports. So uh, that's by the CFO. All right, are you ready for that presentation, CFO? I am, and I'm trying to share my screen. There we go, now I'm able to now. Can you all see this now? We can. Yes. Okay, good. 
So this is my November report. I uh, am starting here with just a few general comments. Um, right off the bat, you'll notice that uh, the finance report is as of November and the operations reports are as of October. And the reason for that is uh, the finance team um, has shortened the close process so that we could give the November report to you at this meeting. We did the October at the last meeting. Uh, it's about a nearly a 30% uh, reduction in the cycle time for the, the accounting team to produce the financial statements. Um, we've done that. We can get the information out quicker to everybody else in January so that they can meet their deadlines so we can all be in sync. But this is the transition month. So we'll have the financial statements for November. The operational reports will be as of October. Next month we'll be back in sync and we'll have the uh, December operation and financial statements. Let's see. Um, the second item there, or actually the third bullet, uh, I added, this was not in what was posted so I would like this version to go into the record. Uh, basically, um, we were required by CMS to comply with the price transparency regulation effective January 1, 2021. And I wanted to make sure our new board understood that we did, uh, we believe we are compliant with this regulation. We have posted on our website the required files, there's a machine readable one, and the top 300 shoppable services. Um, we're, we've provided education to the, face, the patient facing staff, um, that would be registration and financial counselors. We are distributing uh, talking points and Q&A to the rest of the organization. We did uh, discuss this at our executive leadership team meeting uh, this week. Um, this has been going on for some time. Um, I'm not sure if the board is aware of this regulation. It, uh, it's been uh, being kicked around for um, several years probably, but there were a lot of folks that believed it would never really come to play on January 1, um, but it did. And, uh, you know, DeVecchio has mentioned, you know, in the past that uh, many organizations are opting not to comply and accepting penalties. Um, however, that, that is uh, not what AHS has done. We have actually done our best to be, to adhere to the rules and those files are now out on the website and you all can see them as can any of our patients or anyone else. It will be interesting to see the reaction in the uh, healthcare community and, and, and basically just in general with this information being out there. I plan to go on to other healthcare sites and take a look what they posted, see how it compares, just as I'm sure others are gonna do the same with what we posted. Um, and my thought is that maybe finance committee would like a, a fuller briefing on this, uh, maybe at the next finance committee. Uh, so I'd be happy to do that, but at least uh, you'll all, as our new board know that we were compliant or we have done our best to be compliant. Quick question. So Kim, are these uh, uh, charge master, basically a charge master snapshot of the top 300? Yes, they have to be shoppable services. And there were uh, suggested um, 
items in the regulations. So if you provided those services, you had to include those, and then the rest could be your top uh, services. But they ha you had to make them shoppable. There's a lot to all this. It took us probably seven months to get this done. So a lot of work went in it internally, and there's a lot to it. And I'm happy to, you know, come back and do a presentation on it. How does it relate to uh, rates that we actually would pay or that would be reimbursed if we were to bill private insurers for the services we provide to their clients? So if you look at our website, you'll see lots of NAs because we don't necessarily have a contracted price. But this regulation requires you to provide what your uh, rate would be to a private insurer, which is why this is so controversial and why many people may not be complying. And I will add to that, you know, our, you know, managed Medi-Cal rates are, you know, quite low, particularly if you compare them to our cost or if you compare them to a commercial payer. And it, it, it makes me wonder having this information out there, you know, what somebody might do with it. So um, anyway, we'll, uh, we'll, if, every, if finance committee is in agreement, I saw a lot of heads nod, we'll put it on the tracker and we'll come back and do a full presentation next time. A full presentation would be great. I have another question. Why are we not comparable with the market? Are we trying to be like, even with Medi-Cal reimbursements, what is the logic behind the difference in, in rate? Well, you each, each, when you negotiate with a payer, you negotiate rates with that payer. So, you know, you might have a, you have a contract with Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Managed Medi-Cal Alliance, Managed Medi-Cal Blue Cross. And we're always trying to do the best we can to improve our net revenue. Um, our, our charge master, we've been trying to do a better job to get it to relate more to our cost. We've got a ways to go. We're not there yet by any means. Um, but we try to make sure that we can get the rest of the revenue necessary to run our organization. Us as a safety net, you know, we don't have a big margin. So we want to make sure that we get the best rates possible that we can negotiate. So when this comes back next time, um, not, not to drag this out too much, but I would be interested in, let's say, if we have several different contract rates, which ones go on, go get posted on this site? Yes. Um, and it, it, yeah, you'll be interested to see. The requirement is that you put your rates up there. We just have a lot of NAs because we don't have a lot of contracts. I mean, especially covering all of our shoppable items. Because our three, our hospitals don't have um, system agreements. Is there a timeline or a plan for creating a system so that we can have contracts? Because I'm sure people stumble into our level one trauma center uh, by no fault of their own. They just get brought in on an ambulance, and we need to be able to capture that revenue. Yeah, let's uh, let's uh, let me bring this back to the group, and we can we can talk about the the whole process because there is a lot to it. It's not definitely not simple. Um, and not something I can just uh, <laughs> um, really give you a good understanding of just in a, in a casual conversation. 
Um, but our, our rates are out there. You can all look on our website right now. I'm happy to send out a link and you can look and you can see where we are contracted and where we're not now. Just as a, to make sure that we address this question either tonight or in another meeting, maybe in February, is there a timeline for contracts to be established with private insurers? We have a contract strategy that was done as part of the budget this year. Uh -huh. um, we've hired somebody to do this negotiation for us with the exception of managed medical, at least at this point. Um, we've made progress. Um, it is on the tracker to come back to you and tell you how we're doing. Um, we, we did our initial contracting with this consultant I think we got it done in maybe the November timeframe because remember our budget didn't get 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 passed until September. So um, they've only had a few months to work on. But our goal is to have system contracts uh, so that we don't have this problem, particularly at Alameda Hospital, where um, folks find themselves out of network with these large bills. Granted, we have an internal policy that we will accept their in-network price and we'll have to take their word for it because we don't know. We've been doing that for years, but we're trying to improve the situation. What's the name of the contract agency? It's a consultant. Mm -hmm. It's called Chancellor. So they are stepping in our shoes, negotiating these agreements. Uh, we do not have uh, a system employee that provides that to the organization. We haven't had one. I, I don't know when the last person terminated. Someone on the call may know, but uh, they have not. No one. Ha no, we have not had anyone in that role since I've been here. Let me just uh, offer just a little bit more context that I hope is helpful, uh, Kim. So, so um, I'm not sure if it came across clearly. We we have contracts with commercial payers. Uh, what Kim is describing is that we don't have them. Uh, uh, as a system, meaning the contracts may be for specific sites. Uh, having contracts with payers for the entirety of the system is not a decision we get to make on our own. We can approach it and say, we would like to get a contract with you for your plan members that cuts across the entirety of our system so we can have standardization. The plan gets to decide whether they because the plan has to create network adequacy and they may say, I actually don't want your hospital that site in network. I don't need it in my network, um, um, or you know whatever rates you want to offer are not competitive for me. So I don't want it in the network. There's a host of factors. So let's just make sure that uh, that may be clear to others uh, uh, who've uh, been in the space more. But it's not exclusively the purview of AHS to say I want system-wide contracts uh, for for the organization. Uh, so so we're working with a. a a chancellor, as she mentioned, to try to pursue that uh, route, which has its pros and cons as well. Uh, um, but we we don't ultimately have full control over whether we're we're able to do that on our own. So just so you're clear, we have commercial contracts uh, at most of our sites with uh, many of the major um, uh, commercial plans, uh, but not at all of them, and not at all of the sites. So. And a uh, quick question. Many of them we, we were able to consolidate, right? There were some that we were able to consolidate for the system. Uh, there were a few. I mean, Kaiser is probably system-wide. I, I, I don't know, but I'm going to venture guess that Kaiser is, which is a substantial part of our commercial pyramids. Uh, but Aetna, um, or sorry, Anthem is Anthem. 
uh, and that's a that's a major uh, commercial player in the in uh, California, Northern California, uh, to be more specific, even. Uh, but Anthem, you know, there's certain facilities they don't they don't want to contract with us, uh, uh, for. Uh, we were able to eventually get one for Alameda Hospital. It's uh, uh, you know I have some thoughts about that, but. Uh, uh, yes, so we have it at certain sites, we have it with certain payers, and uh, we are working to continue to always address that in uh, productive and uh, beneficial ways for the community. And are, are all our different hospital sites on different licenses? Uh, now we consolidated the license about a year and a half ago, Trustee Fox, for San Leandro and uh, Highland. So the core now is under one license, and that will help with that effort. Alameda, as you know, we, we manage through a JPA we don't own. Uh, it is not under a consolidated license with the core. Uh, it's a separate license. Okay. And the other, to Kim's point about contracting, uh, we uh, had a contractor before when we did a massive overhaul of our, our, our uh, rate negotiations, which Trustee Banerjee was mentioning. Uh, that individual who was actually quite uh, competent and had some managed care background uh, was very instrumental in helping us get what we got. Um, it uh, turns out that uh, strategically it it, it, it wasn't a um, sustainable uh, role to have in the organization because we just don't have a lot of commercial volume and a lot of commercial contracts that we're working through, uh, given the, uh, the uh, portion of the community we predominantly serve. And so uh, it turns out that just having a contracted entity that can help you on an episodic manner uh, uh, is, uh, well, we, we view it now. You can certainly change this, uh, your volition, as the uh, more um, sustainable and uh, um, productive uh, uh, route to use for uh, PR contracting and gets us expertise that we wouldn't otherwise have um, um, and relationships, which are very key in these types of interactions. Yeah, and, and what I found too, just to add to that, is uh, uh, the uh, consultant that we're using has relationships. They know who we need to get to in these organizations to get contracts. So it's, I think it's been a, a win and uh, we will come back and report how we're doing to, to the strategy that is on our track list. Yeah, and, and I know Kim will, Kim will as a chef, she'll do a great job at giving you a more thorough presentation. Uh, uh, Trustee Essien, I think you had made a comment about, uh, uh, you know, payers, or, or I'm sorry, patients, you know, coming into the emergency room, uh, uh, oftentimes, particularly in a trauma center situation, not on their own volition, uh, uh, but, but because we're a trauma center. Happen to be brought here. That, uh, there's some uh, laws that guide what we're able to do there. We follow those at statewide, so we're not uh, we're fine there. And then uh, when there's a situation uh, that uh, goes beyond that, we often will uh, do uh, LOAs, letters of agreement, etc., case by case with plans uh, that may be uh, covering an individual, even if we don't have or in situations where we don't have a negotiated agreement. So. Uh, uh, the self-pay, and this also got to your earlier question about, you know, this bill, the problem with the bill and why a lot of people aren't adhering to it, not just the transparency piece that is about your negotiated rates with plans, but it actually uh, doesn't um, relate very much at all with what a patient experiences as the out-of-pocket uh, cost, whether you are uh, covered or not. Because in our case, um, uh, we have a... Um, a um, we call a sliding scale uh, arrangement for individuals who uh, have no insurance coverage, and so long as you meet those requirements, you know your your discount could be as much as 
100 percent to you know some other uh, percentage so so that's why people take issue with it not to mention that it uh, uh, becomes a transparency issue and a, uh, a payment strategy or payer strategy uh, um, issue for hospitals that are trying to ensure that they can meet their costs but kim will tell you more about it i just want to make sure that we don't leave too many unaddressed questions this is a big thing Thank you, Navecchio. Uh, the last bullet here um, relates to the Whitley Phase Two engagement. Uh, this was an engagement that the Finance Committee um, started in the, in the summer timeframe, and uh, the deliverable was to was right about now, the right beginning of the year. And we are getting very close. So now that I have a finance chair, I can reach out to you and uh, we can decide what the next steps are um, with this engagement. And um, they have a set of recommendations that uh, you know they want to provide to you and the rest of finance committee and the organization as well. So, um, so I look forward to having that conversation with you soon. All right, so here's uh, the volume highlights. Um, right off the bat, you can see that you know, there's lots of negatives on this screen. What you need to remember is that we did not budget for shelter in place and the reductions in volumes from the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we made a conscious decision not to. We didn't know how long the pandemic was going to last, when there'd be a vaccine. We, none of us had a crystal ball. And so what we decided to do is just to go with what we thought our volumes would be if, there, if things went back to normal, whatever normal is. But this is based pretty much on our historical run rates with changes when we knew a new physician was starting or we knew something was going to change and we would have uh, adjusted the budget volume. So when you look at this, um, November is actually um, lower or more off than year to date. So November was, a, was impacted more negatively than we have been over the summer months. Um, you can see the acute discharges are off 12.4%, which is not as high as the days. And that's because the length of stay is shorter. Um, if you look down to the middle there, you can see the ED, trauma cases, um, also the surgery volumes are all down substantially. Uh, when you look at surgeries, outpatient is down the most because that represents mostly elective type of procedures. And of course, you know, uh, making sure it's safe for the employee or for patients to come is one thing, but also remember that uh, patients may be reluctant to schedule if they don't have to, because they don't want to be here either. Um, down on the skilled nursing side, um, we've improved there, and that's because we've opened the quarantine unit, and that's the plan there was to have an additional census of 20. Um, we actually were at 21 on December 17th, so this uh, quarantine unit which allows um, patients to quarantine and get out of the hospital sooner and then get into a skilled nursing bed. So it's, it's been a win-win for the community, not just for Alameda Health System. And you can see it's improving our numbers here as well. 
And on the clinic side, we had a busy month in November. Some of that may have been some catch up in our uh, stats, um, but overall year to date, they're 2.4% ahead. Telehealth is really driving that. Telehealth uh, has been a hit, I think, for patients and clinicians across the board. And uh, you can definitely see it in the, in the volumes in the clinic. Next slide here. I added a couple of epic slides. So um, there's four of them. Two of them relate to charges and two of them relate to payments. So what this is telling you is that Alameda Health System, which is the kind of blue or teal line, and the dotted line is our peer group. And the peer group are other systems that have identified themselves as safety net. And this gives you the um, weekly, it's uh, the dates at the bottom are every two weeks, but the, it's basically weekly data going back from when the um, pandemic started until the end of the calendar year. And what it does is it takes the pre-shelter in place, which is that uh, February timeframe, and it creates an average for us and our peer group. And then we get compared to that across, you know, all of the weeks up to the end of the year. So in this case, you can see that at the, um, probably the height of the shelter in place, our charges did not drop down as far as our peer group. And then the peer group almost, well, they pretty much got back to baseline and then they've been kind of jumping around since then. And for us, we've stayed below the our peer group. And the big dip there you see in October was the five day strike we had. Um, and we've been kind of, we've been coming back up, but we're still, there's still a gap between us and the peer group. So could you, could you explain who, who is the peer group? Where is it? Is it California? Is it Bay Area? Where is it? So this is all Epic United States, or I'm sorry, West safety net for the Western part of the United States where the client has considered themselves safety net. There's is no there... definition of safety net within Epic itself declared. Okay. Is, is there a way to compare it to California? Yeah, we've done this several different ways. This is the the most the best information I had. We've we've done it to California as well. Uh, this was the data I had available for this presentation, but I can uh, bring that back. Is there a way to also limit it to public health facilities and not include privates? Uh, I don't, we can ask them that. I, there'd probably be just a few systems that are on Epic that are close uh, by, I, we can see if I, they'd be willing so to do it. They may, they, I, I think they try to keep the peer group at a uh, sizable enough amount that you can't uh, discern too much about any uh, one organization. And if you get to Publix in California with Epic, then you're basically down to now, I think they are about six or seven. I think it's, a, I think it's, a, go back here, I agree, I think it's about seven. Again, there's yeah. 21 public health systems in California. And I think the number was seven. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that they may be a bit uncomfortable. Uh, that size, they may be a, a bit uncomfortable with. Yeah. Uh, check. We should check. Uh, just uh, to We can check. I, I don't know what the sample size would be. I don't know how many of those public health systems are using Epic. So. Sure. 
So just a question. So uh, we're looking at the peer group having $64.1 million of charges a week. Is that the way this, what this portrays? That's us. That's our average over from 1.5 to 2.29, okay. which is actually pretty good because we were up on, we went live on Epic uh, pretty much October 1, just, just for simplicity's sake. And we were actually, you know, getting charges in the system. So it's a, it's a pretty good start. And HB includes, as I think Kim said, all of the, um, basically the inpatient charges. For us, that's a blend of acute services as well as uh, post-acute services. Uh, so one thing to consider, one, as I, I, I so forgive me for saying this, but uh, that the peer group is an average of all of them. Uh, so there are people uh, in that peer group, obviously, who are below that line as well as people above that line. So so we're not, uh, it's not like everybody in the peer group is at that line or or higher. Uh, there are people who are below it too. And there may be some people whose performance skews the line up, just as there are people like us who scoot the line uh, down in, in many areas here. The other uh, things that confound that uh, is charges are based off of the mix of services that you offer. So you have some peer groups that have uh, maybe much more tertiary services or the percentage of their services that are acute relative to ours are greater, uh, where the acute charges are greater because we have you know post-acute and uh, we have rehab as well, um, uh, behavioral health charges or other sort of um, cognitive-based uh, clinical services tend to be less than the interventional therapeutic ones. So those are all the other things that drive uh, the charges. So uh, one should not necessarily expect that we'll be right at the peer group. Uh, this is a reflection of the blend. Just as when Kim was saying earlier, we didn't drop as much. A, big, a reason for that was uh, our behavioral health, um, uh, John George, stayed full. Our SNFs stayed full. And so where if you're, if all of your business was acute and a lot of it was surgical and electives were canceled and you weren't doing anything, you fell further down uh, than people who had a blend that uh, their volume sustained because it wasn't as uh, um, uh, variable based off of the pandemic. So just to... What, is the correct interpretation that we... that? Uh... We dropped maybe a little less than the peer group, but that we haven't bounced back as well as the peer group. That is, uh, I think that's a correct interpretation generally. Yes, yes, I think that's fair. So that's the HB charges. So that's hospital-based charges. And then the next slide is hospital-based payments. And this one, you know, we look like we're doing, you know, really well. Uh, but I have to caution everyone in that uh, we were slow in getting claims out the door and getting payment. So in February, the baseline is, even though it looks, you know, really good here to our peer group, I really, I think that it was a little low. Um, but we have been doing well in our collection efforts. We started out really slow. We it took us a while to get all of our claims out the door. We got them all out. We started getting some payments. We got denials, a lot of denials, and then we've been working those. And we've been doing well uh, collecting now over the last, you know, several months. In fact, the impact of lower charges on our collections has not really hit us so far because of this delay in collecting payments. So here, the cumulative variance to us is, you know, 52.8 million. Uh, but like I said, I think that's a bit overstated. But I, 
uh, but we have been doing um, very well. And then this is the uh, physician um, professional based charges. And uh, this looks a lot like the HB, except in, in the sense that when we the shelter in place first took first happened, we didn't see the big drop. But then we picked right back up and we're actually ahead of others, our peer group. And I think we did an outstanding job standing up telehealth. And you can see that we don't have uh, the big variance in our um, clinic volumes. Uh, yes, we do have services at John George and at the skilled nursing that probably aren't that impacted um, by the pandemic because the, the, our census is full. We still need patients to, uh, we still need physicians to see those patients in house. But um, this is, uh, I think, a, a positive story. And as a reminder to other trustees and Kim, I know we've talked about this before. To date, there there maintains pay parity between in-person visits and the televisits, which is still a very very big boon for us. And I'm going to support what our CFO just said as a practitioner here. Uh, the way we stood up telehealth in in the fashion we did was actually quite impressive. And um, <laughs> as a side note, it, it 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 at least subjectively feels like our no-show rates actually dropped <laughs> because people were at home to answer their phone rather than not coming in for visits. So this, this I'm gonna, I, I would agree with our CFO and characterize this as one of our wins, uh, which we're desperate to look for. And then here's the payments. And, and this is also uh, positive. We're 4.8 million cumulative ahead from our baseline. And you can see in our baseline there, it was quite hot. So that was an anomaly with that period in February. Um, but this is also another uh, very positive story here. Any questions on the EPIC slides? Okay, so Here's uh, the financial highlight slide. Um, basically, our net income for the month of November was 1.4 million, which is 1.7 million better than budget. Uh, for the year, we're sitting at a loss of 30.4 against a budget of a loss of 6.4, which is a negative variance of 23.96 or 24 million rounded. And if you look at EBITDA, that's earnings before interest, depreciation, and amortization. That is basically uh, our estimated cash flow from operations. We are sitting at 3.1 million for the month of November, uh, which is 1.9 million uh, better than budget. And for the year, we are at a loss of 23.2 million, which is 33.8 million off of our budget. I'll get into some detail. Uh, this first slide is the revenue highlights. Uh, I wanna point out that our gross charges there, it's about the fourth line down is um, a miss of budget of 38.1 million or 13.1%. Uh, 
If you remember from the volume slide, there was a stat called adjusted discharges that was down about 12.6%. So that's pretty much covering, uh, saying that that uh, miss is a volume related miss. Year to date, it's even uh, closer to that um, drop in discharges at 11.2% miss from budget. For net patient service revenue, we're sitting at a collection percent of 16.2%. That's below our budget of 16.4. I want to point out that our budget um, basically spread net revenue evenly over the year. Um, we've talked about our tools and um, how we use them in the past, uh, but basically we built in rate increases from what we were talking about earlier, the chancellor engagement to renegotiate contracts, along with our Medi-Cal managed care contracts. And those are spread evenly. So the budget is a little high in the first uh, six or eight months of the year, and then it should be more on track later in the year. Um, year to date, uh, it's even a little more so uh, emphasized, and that's because the first three months, the interim budget that we had, had some timing spread issues in the budget. And since the interim budget uh, was approved and we did operate it for three months, I couldn't go back and restate the budget that we had presented. We just did it for the nine, the, we updated for the nine months based on the final approved budget. Going down, there's another variance there in supplemental programs. It's a positive variance of 8.4 million. That was CARES Act funding we received. We received that money in July. We uh, had thought that we needed to record that money in the year-end financial statement. And as a result of that, we had not recognized it until the month of November. Um, we finished our audit. The audit was approved uh, by at the last meeting of our uh, prior board. And probably we could have gotten this entry in in October, but because of the rush on the getting these statements out, I think we were a month late on recording it. But um, we have now trued up the audit to our internal financial statements and have um, booked this this revenue, this CARES funding uh, in this fiscal year. Um, and it was based on the idea that the money that we had received through year end would be in last fiscal year and the money received in this fiscal year would be reported in this fiscal year. Um, so that's that's kind of how, how everything shook out with our auditors. I, I do wanna point out that uh, and we, uh, with the old finance committee, we talked about this a few times, um, but we had a lot of concern about how we were gonna do revenue recognition for the CARES funding. We received you know, almost $30 million uh, in relief money. And whether you record it in one fiscal year or another is based on revenue recognition principles. And because all of this was happening so new and so fast, we didn't know what the guidance was gonna be. And as it turns out, it's not really gonna be based on what, how you reported it in your financial statements. We're gonna to have to actually um, submit uh, 
uh, information about comparison data to previous years based on you know six month timeframes is what I've seen so far. It's what we just submitted for the third time um, to on our net patient service revenue, and we exclude the the uh, CARES funding, and we can even exclude other supplemental funding according to our auditors. I've actually engaged them to help us in this process. So um, anyway, that's that's the story there, but I know I'll be coming back because there'll be much more to talk about as we uh, start truing up. Um, did we receive everything we were supposed to receive? Do we owe anything back? All of that. How much do you anticipate from the relief bill that was just passed? Well, they what they've said is you should get at least 2% of your net revenue um, as a guideline, uh, but I know that they hadn't spent everything from the last bill and now they have additional money. We did submit showing that, you know, we have uh, a need beyond 2% of our net revenue, but I don't know what we're going to get. And it's, it's, we, there's, it's not clear how they are making these decisions. So, and then on the year to date on that same line item of supplemental programs, uh, the variance drops from, you know, 8.4 down to 4.8. And that's because we had assumed in the budget that we would be recording the FY20 uh, true up or settlement with the county uh, in the December timeframe. That's how we've done it always in the past. But I think because this year we've been uh, working closely with the county on behavioral health, uh, they we had a we knew what the true up was going to be a lot sooner than previous years, and so when the auditor sent the county the confirm, the county put that they owed us uh, 12.9 million of the 15.6 we think were due, and so they responded on the confirm. And then we had to report it in last year's revenue. So we're going to have a permanent uh, difference to our budget of 12.9 million um, this fiscal year. I still think we'll get the full 15.6, but it won't. It will. We're negotiating that now. We had our first meeting that got canceled. We have another meeting coming up here soon with the county. I don't think it'll take us long to to settle, but I I think we will uh, ultimately get the 15.6. How typical is it for the county to uh, disagree with our billing? Well, we, uh, in, in behavioral health, uh, right now we're not currently on our ethics system uh, and we're trying to retrofy that. Um, so we've been working closely with the county. We've had five billing retreats to improve our retreats, to improve our process. Uh, but basically, the county does concurrent review. They're daily, they're approving days um, for payment or approving an admin day or denying it. We typically don't appeal today. Um, and then there's an invoicing process that takes months to complete because the, the county needs to know if we got payment from somebody else because they're the last resort payer, 
And so we have to bill, get a denial, and then submit it to the county before they can pay us. So all of this takes time. But we've just been much more on top of it because we've been working with them and understanding where all the pain points are and how to streamline the process. Um, definitely Alameda Health System, our revenue cycle needs to do a better job. It's clear to me and we are, we have a project plan and I'm thankful that the county's been at the table with us and, I, and I'm looking forward to um, uh, speeding this up, but there will always be a delay because it just takes time to get that denial from another payer. So Kim, I think we also have a statewide Medi-Cal true up. Is that is that true? So the county does. So the county and uh, is the one that actually bills the state account of California for the short oil patients. Are you familiar with the whole short oil process, uh, uh, Trustee Fox? Yeah. Uh, yes. It's been <laughs> so, a while, but I remember it. Uh, yeah. So they. Uh, so. Uh, we basically uh, um, provide the care. We provide the information to the county. The county uses a system called INSIST, and they bill the state, and then the state responds back to the county. And then the county, they don't necessarily share the EOB or the, the information that comes from the state. They give us some information, but we don't post anything back into our system currently. But we're working to change all of that so we can be on top of it all. Well, something that might be helpful to the committee uh, in a future meeting would be uh, a description of the various true ups that we have on our books that take years to finally settle. Because I think some of these numbers are fairly large numbers. And it would be good to have an understanding of what each of them is about and, uh, and how the estimates are made while we wait for the true up. Yeah, and there are, so we had additional costs that we uh, provided to the county and the county is um, updating their, uh, the cost reports. And we are hopeful that there will be some additional funding that may come back to us for their open cost report years. And I think that, I don't know if that was in my letter this time or not, but yeah, so you're correct. Uh, so here are the operating expenses. We're at 87.5 million, which is pretty close to budget. Uh, you would expect us to be under budget since our volumes are so low. Um, year to date, we are below budget about 1.1%. Uh, along with the lower volume and lower census, we also have additional costs associated you know, with the pandemic. So there's pretty much um, two uh, pretty significant variances besides labor. I'll get into labor on the next slide. Purchase services uh, is less positive this month than we've been than we have been running, and that's driven by the timing of outside medical services invoices. So here for our uh, HPAC population or indigent population, um, we are at risk for services provided outside of our system. And it takes a while for those invoices to get reconciled and to come through for payment. And we had um, a significant amount of them come through in this month, reducing our positive variance. Um, year to date, you know, you, if you were looking at all of our departments, you'd see lots of favorable variants. The biggest ones are in emergency food and shelter costs. 
probably because our ED volumes are down and uh, it's partially offset by increase in laundry costs for COVID. In regard to material and supplies, um, this month we are just running uh, lower uh, than our run rate for pharmaceutical costs. Uh, and we also had an adjustment for unmatched purchase orders. So once a year, right around this time, our staff goes in and looks to see, uh, you know, if we've, if we've able, been able to match up purchase orders with invoices and get them paid, because sometimes invoices go a different route and paid and the PO sits out there. So they cleaned that up and we ended up um, with an adjustment this month. And uh, year to date, we're actually running negative. So it's uh, you know the opposite story there. And that's due to the COVID-19 treatment costs for antiviral drugs. It's, it's over budget by 1.3 million, cleaning supplies and lab reagents. Any questions here? All right. So the next slide is the labor costs. And that was the largest variance um, typically what I like to do is combine registry and salary and wages. Um, we've done analysis in the past and it, and our registry costs are pretty similar to our, our employee costs. There's not a huge, uh, differential. Uh, typically we've been trying to, uh, hire and in our budget, we have been, um, budgeting for more regular positions and less registry but because there really hasn't been that big cost differential, uh, typically I just combine them. So on a combined basis, we're unfavorable this month, 2.6 million. We're actually unfavorable 13.4 million year to date. Uh, so it's pretty consistent this month when you look at year to date. Um, we are uh, over because of our uh, leave of absences that we're covering and this month because we you know we had the lower staffing uh, and we had the holidays so we expected there'd be a lot more PTO taken and what we're actually seeing uh, is that no very little PTO is being taken so folks working at home aren't taking PTO probably because they can't go on vacation right shelter in place and um, with Veterans Day and then the two Thanksgiving holidays, um, you know, we would have expected a lot more uh, PTO uh, historically, and that of course did not happen. Uh, included in our paid hours in November are 130.4 FTE on COVID-related leave of absence at a cost of 1.1 million. And I think on the next slide, you'll see uh, what that has, you know, how that trends in the organization and the impact of it. Uh, in regard to our employee benefits and retirement, um, those are really timing differences. Uh, again, with our budget spread, we don't have the ability to get that precise. So it's uh, a lot of our, our expense items are spread evenly. And with FICA, you reach a ceiling where you're no longer having to have to pay the full amount. And for retirement as well, uh, once you get to certain caps, then the accrual stops. So um, it's really just a timing difference for those items. Um, if you look year to date under the GASB 68 and GASB 75, those are the longer term funding for our pension plan. If you look at actual, it's 
fairly consistent with the current month in that it's a credit because we're reducing our liability on the balance sheet over the year. Um, our budget um, in the year to date is actually an expense of 3 million. And you can see in the current budget, it's now a credit of 1.5. That's because our board, when they approved the final budget, approved us to make the adjustment for the next nine months. So this year to date is always gonna look a little funky but the current month will be much more in line with where it should be. Any questions on all of that? Kim, um, this is Kim Kinney. Did the expected PTO at the end of the year, you think that that was lower than expected because of the PTO that folks took in the early part, like after the COVID paid time off and all of that, that folks had been using those up? So our, the, uh, the COVID-related leave of absence, we are providing up to 12 weeks paid leave. They're not using their PTO for that. And that is why they did not need to use PTO, um, I guess, is, my, is, is, is that the reason that it might be? Well, for you, are you talking about the holidays, the Thanksgiving and Veterans Day? Yeah, because, because many have took advantage of that paid time off yes. that so they could for, then keep save their PTO and not use that. Yeah, that well, for those three holidays, yes, people did uh, use PTO. However, uh, normally people would take a lot more time off than that. I mean, exactly. This, yeah, towards this, the end of the year. So yeah, I, I meant not just Veterans Day or Thanksgiving Day, but like that end of the year kind of vacation time that people take. Yes, and that's and we budget based on what we've seen historically. So normally this would be a month where a lot of people would take off, but they didn't. So it's, it's definitely having a, a negative impact because if you're on PTO, we're going to pay you off the balance sheet. Correct. And uh, here we, we, we weren't able to do that. So we're seeing a higher expense and a higher negative variance. So Kim, you said that we have we bought, we offer a paid leave of absence or a family leave of absence of 12 weeks paid. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, which seems like, uh, you know, I don't know what other organizations are doing, but that certainly seems like a, uh, a good benefit that we're offering our people. Yes. Um, I think, uh, we did, we are consistent with the, the law. However, we are an essential, organization so we didn't need to maybe provide that full level of benefit but uh, the decision was made that we would um, provide that benefit um, so I don't know Devecchio if you want to make any comments yeah no uh, that's that you're that's right Kim uh, we actually did um, uh, Trustee Fox we did this back in uh, April I believe it was at the early part of the pandemic as a part of kind of acknowledging you know uh, that uh, there was a requirement for essential workers to be here. And it was, uh, if you, um, it, it was pretty broad utilization. Obviously, you could uh, use it if you uh, got COVID, but you could also use it because there were school closures and closures of senior centers and people losing their jobs. You could use it to uh, uh, do things that you needed to do on a personal basis. Um, the law required that that went through uh, December, through December 31st. And so, uh, that it, uh, benefit was extended through that period. So it's uh, over now. Uh, uh, we did have a lot of people use it. 
uh, uh, and now people are returning, uh, and we had a lot of registry usage uh, during that time associated with it. Uh, uh, but now, as of January 1st, it's over and people are returning to work. So you're saying that what we did is it, it was required by law that we provide this paid leave? Not, not, no, no, no. It was, it was required by law for certain employers. Um, uh, there were certain employers who were exempted from it. Uh, we, as a matter of practice or, you know, a principle, uh, being a, uh, a uh, healthcare organization that wanted to support our, our workforce, elected to uh, go ahead and do it. There was a challenge actually to the law, um, to the exemptions in the law for certain employers. And I can't remember correctly, and I don't think our head of HR, Tony Rutman, uh, Mike may know this, but I think that challenge was successful. And so there could actually end up being some retrospective uh, exposure to organizations who uh, thought they were exempt uh, from the law, but may have uh, some liability. I'm not sure how that works, but. So uh, I'm not objecting to the fact that we did that, but I'm just wondering, when we do take on an obligation like that that isn't budgeted, um, do we get uh, seek the uh, approval of, of the board of supervisors to do that? No, no, we uh, create, that, you know create an issue with us with our uh, uh, you know maximum uh, maximum. I don't, I don't think that went through the board of trustees either. It, it did not, actually. Uh, thank you, uh, Trustee Banerjee. Uh, so just as a matter of practice, uh, um, um, uh, Trustee Fox, it would uh, you, you generally don't, uh, because you're a separate entity, take your own uh, budgeting matters to uh, the, the, the county, although obviously with the uh, relationship, the, the underpinning uh, structure, I think, is a big thing that you will certainly want to do, and you may elect to do some one-offs as well. Uh, but as a matter of practice, uh, uh, this type of thing would generally be done uh, with a, uh, a budget change like this with the approval of the AHS Board of Trustees. But as Trustee Banerjee uh, appropriately uh, points out, uh, I made a, uh, a decision in early uh, April with, I did uh, seek out some informal uh, uh, um, uh, support of trustees, and I think it may have been with the executive committee at the time. I, I can confirm that, but uh, generally, uh, I, it would have been a matter that would have been brought before the full board for adoption, and because of the labor unrest, because of the pandemic, everything that was going on at the time, um, I brought it to the board afterwards, which I normally would not do. Um, it's a matter of practice. Uh, but our budget at that point, which was last fiscal year's budget, was going to be tremendously impacted because the pandemic had significantly impacted our business model at that juncture. Yeah. One, one of the downsides of that, uh, uh, Alan, was also that, you know, once you have that benefit, uh, people want to take it, whether they, uh, you know, so uh, that had some clinical implications for us too. And of course, the expense that was, and it would have been um, so it, that, you know, it, the principle of it was good. The fiscal implications and the clinical implications, I think, were are things that we, we had to deal with. Okay. So then here is the FTE trend. Um, so you can see, you know, we've historically had what I'll call a vacancy rate or a cushion uh, in our budget. And then you can see there in March, April, when the impact of 
pandemic hit and the LOA policy um, was rolled out, the lines crossed. And so we no longer uh, have that gap between our budget and actual. Um, and and this, this space, you know, if you look back in history uh, for AHS has been, ha has been there for some time. Any questions on that? Okay. So then this next slide is my, uh, is the balance sheet slide. Uh, I, I pick, I picked a few indicators here um, based on the finance committee's uh, recommendations. When I first started uh, last year, I did uh, add the net negative uh, balance here to this slide. I usually show it on another slide, but I, I think it, better to put them all together we can you know we can talk about this uh this finance committee may want to see other things or see things differently um the first side in there is days in cash and days in cash is really just a timing variance because we don't have any cash on hand so really if there's cash it's just because a vendor hasn't cashed their check or it's just a timing difference between when we drew from the county and when the checks cleared the bank, so to speak. Because um, the uh, just as a reminder, everything, um, all the cash transactions are against our line of credit. So every dollar we collect gets swept to the county treasury, and then we request draws to pay our vendors and to pay payroll. The uh, next item there, the gross AR days, uh, they actually went up 3.7 days. That's the first time it's gone in this direction for many, many, many months. And this is the first time I've had to report some, uh, some uh, negative impacts on our stabilization of EPIC. Um, I'm really proud of the work the team has done um, post go live. Um, uh, what happened one is we started getting no authorizations for fee-for-service Medi-Cal. This is an error. We shouldn't need authorizations for fee-for-service Medi-Cal, but for some reason uh, we're getting uh, no authorizations. So we need to fix this error. We're still working on trying to fix that. And we also have a high amount of no authorization errors from the Alliance. Uh, this has been going on for some time. So we reached out to the Alliance and we've had one JOC, that's a joint operations committee meeting with them. And we are working to resolve that. We have another meeting coming up. Both sides are looking at the data and trying to figure out, you know, what's not working so we can get this cleaned up because our care coordinators believe we have authorizations. So, um, so we're working to get that cleaned up and then we should start continue our downward trend. We're almost to, we're at about median right now. And, you know, we're all striving to be a, a top epic performer. In regarding to days and accounts payable, we did decrease a bit there. Um, again, we've, we have the funds available. So we've been, you know, uh, processing checks timely and our percent, percent over 60 is consistent with prior month. Uh, the net position uh, that deteriorated since year end of June 30. Uh, to me, uh, just as the CFO, I think this is one of the numbers that the finance committee really needs to focus on. Um, 
the deterioration is clearly, you know, due to our year-to-date loss. So um, I've, I've added that to this, uh, this chart. And then the last line is the balance on the line of credit. So I've just moved the balance up here. I'm going to give you a projection and uh, in the next slide here, which I typically do every month. And that line of credit is with the county, just to make sure everybody's following me. So here's my, uh, my forecast. Um, I typically would like to bring this out to always be a 12-month forecast based on our run rate. Uh, and I will do that, but uh, since we were using our budget as the basis instead of our run rate um, prior to this, I still need to move this out um, several more months, which uh, I will get done for you soon. Um, I do want to remind everybody um, why our balance was so low on June 30 of 20 when you know we were thinking we would not meet the NNB requirement on our line of credit. Um, and that is because of the CARES funding. We received um, substantial amount of funding, you know, right at right in the May-June timeframe. Uh, and we also got prepayments. We, uh, we got payments on the safety net care pool of 15.1 million. Uh, we actually are gonna have to turn around and pay some of that back when we settle on, on the old waiver. Uh, the county prepaid us on the HPAC contract. Uh, they also prepaid us on a few county grants. And we got, the GME got improved and we got $9.5 million of, uh, dollars that we weren't expecting. So the total of all that is, is, um, is actually about $60 million, almost. It's a high 50s. So it made a big difference on the, on the um, end of the year balance on our line of credit. So the blue line there reflects our ongoing can operation. Can you comment on how much you you you, you alluded we we're probably we might have to pay some of that back? Can, do you do you have a rough order of magnitude on on that? Yeah, no. it's on the on my next slide. So, oh, got it. Okay. Uh, so then, just to uh, finish the conversation here, the blue line represents just our regular operations. Yes, we have some timing differences with supplementals, but they're not to the magnitude of these ones from many years ago. So I don't know, you know, when we're going to settle and when we're going to get demands for payment, but we know that there's many years hanging out there, and those are the red line. And I've moved the ones that. CAPH told us would be we would receive the demands by December 31st because we haven't gotten them. It's already January. I moved them out to March. I don't know if we're going to have them in March or not. I do have a call scheduled with the state to see if they can give me more information. Um, but at this point, I don't know when they're going to be due. So the red line is uh, is if we were to have to pay those back, and it assumes the county would allow us to access the line of credit to do so. Any questions on this? Okay. I thought that we've gotten an extension on repayment for an extra year. Did I, am I completing that with something else? So um, we talked to the state 
Um, and they said they may allow us uh, another year, but there's nothing in writing. There's no official notification of that. Um, they said pretty much we want to find out what the final amounts do are first. And then once we know who owes what, then we can have a conversation about how we're going to recoup it and pay other systems what, you know, what is owed. Um, and that was pretty much the extent of the conversation. I mean, I was pretty clear that we don't, you know, we don't have the funds and, you know, it would be extreme hardship. And the fact that, you know, we're paying back from the FYO 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 timeframe, that's a long time ago, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, um, anyway, the amounts are here. Um, Trustee Bouquet, uh, the old waiver now is up to 71,602. Um, you would have expected that to have gone down because we paid the um, 09 waiver payment of 7 million this fiscal year, but the and our balance was uh, I think it was 61 before. So even though we paid it, the balance went up because we got the the uh, safety net care pool money in last fiscal year. Hey, so. On behalf of the new members of the committee, and I might be the only one, but it would be helpful to get definitions of pretty much all of the items in this uh, table. I, I, don't, I don't think I don't know if you, I, I don't think we want to take the time now to go through it, but it would be helpful to maybe see it uh, as footnotes in the in the next meeting uh, presentation, something like that. Because yeah, I if, if I can add, if, if you're complete here, Kim, I have a series of questions. And I, for the sake of time, because we have another meeting at 7 o'clock, which I fully expect the chair to start at 7 o'clock. Um, I can, you tell me the protocol here. Can I send them as an email? Uh, and and I'm sorry for my lack of understanding of this, but I'm trying to learn as fast as I can. But this is so detailed to uh, of little utility to me. So I'm going to ask you some questions and more, uh, hopefully more, uh, you know, 30,000 feet to get me a better understanding because I can't dive in. I've dived into this and um, I have a lot of familiarity with financing. I have some familiarity with public financing, but hospital financing might as well be written in Sanskrit, um, to be blunt. Yeah. Um, we so uh, need to provide some some information to you. Yeah. I'm happy to respond directly to your email, but what I was thinking of doing was in the in the budget, um, there's a table with all of our supplemental funding, and it has uh, two or three prior years, current year, and then uh, uh, which was last year and budget. And I've got notes. And what I was thinking is I could actually uh, expand on those notes to tell you you know, kind of where this is coming from. We also have um, some other documentation that uh, Mike has used in the past, and we can provide that to you too. But yeah, it's complicated, and there's, there is a lot of programs. Um, and this, you know, this was it, really overwhelming for me when I started last year. And even now, I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on it, but it's, there's just a lot to it. Okay. Well, with the chair's uh, consent, I, I can send an email and, and uh, you can discuss it at the next meeting or however you want to respond. Okay. All right. That's, that's, I think that would be very good. Um, so also what I typically do is I will tell you if I made a material change. So that's what that first bullet is. 
our uh, the the rate range, uh, which is uh, in June there for 45 million. It says Medi-Cal managed care rate uh, range um, from July 19 to December 20. Basically, this this kind of trues up um, the difference between our actual Medi-Cal managed care rate and a portion of our cost. Uh, so it, it gives us some additional funding that we're not getting directly from the plan. Uh, but anyway, this amount we think is going to be reduced because of the lower volumes and we have not heard of any relief coming our way. So we went ahead and we reduced it by, uh, by 10 million this month. And that's really the only material change that I've made to this. Um, the table itself, uh, I didn't used to list out as many of these items in this fashion. I, I used to do it on a, in a receivable payable format, but the county staff wanted to see the cash flow. So although I had the cash flow in the other document, they wanted it this way. So um, that's why, you know, why I've done this. And this is, I think, my second month reporting it this way. So. I, and we can talk about whether this is helpful or, or not. Um, so the NNB forecast, um, meaning this graph, the end of the year there with us being about 25 million short has not changed now for since June. So it's this has been very consistent, even though we've had large inflows and outflows of activity. And you think, how did that happen? Well. Um, I'm amazed myself, actually, <laughs> uh, but we did make the FY09 waiver payment of $7 million, so that's one of the Medi-Cal um, waivers from long ago. You can see on line two there, those three are the, the top three items in my table are those uh, recoupments that go back a long time, and the estimated Medi-Cal uh, waiver recoupment are it's the first one there starting from FY11 to 15 are the ones that are still open. We settled on um, 09 now, so that's why it's now starting at 11 and not at 9. Uh, so we paid that. That was a, a pretty good chunk of money, $7 million. We have our EBITDA loss, which probably should have been a new bullet. The EBITDA loss there of $23.2 million. That's EBITDA earnings before interest, depreciation, amortization. That's our indicator of cash. Um, our patient cash, we talked about that a little while ago. We are way ahead of where we thought we would be with COVID. And Measure A is coming in almost to budget. That's 117.7 million is what we put in the budget. When we did our cash flow um, back in June, we thought we would see the tax revenue drop substantially. And it has not it's been much better than we thought. It's not as high as last year, but it's much better than we thought. And then we received more COVID relief money. Uh, we actually got 11.7 million in July and August. And we, I showed you today, we recognized 8.8 .8 million of it in this fiscal year. And then the behavioral health funding, um, we didn't think we would receive that money until at least December, because that's the, been our history. You know, it's usually right around the end of December or the first part of January, and we got it in October. So that was quite a bit early. So that definitely helped our cash flow. 
And then we're not spending a whole lot in CapEx. The, the budget that was approved was 43 million for um, capital. And we are uh, nowhere uh, near spending that at this point during the year. And that's another thing I probably should bring back to you is kind of a summary of, of what our capital plan was and where we are in, in regard to the final approvals and spend. Any questions on this? Okay, uh, I did in include in here, I don't know that we want to take the time to go through it, but I, I thought you all would like to know, you know, how much uh, relief funding we've gotten and from what sources. So we've been tracking this for uh, the board, uh, you know, since the pandemic started. Um, so the CARES Act, we've gotten 24.6 million. Um, the total COVID funding from all programs is 29.9 million. And then typically what folks will ask me then is how much of our expenses increase and uh, the um, direct associated costs, which does not include patient care. So this isn't the lab reagents or the pharmaceuticals to treat patients. This is just um, expenses um, outside of uh, patient care it's estimated at 23.8 million. Uh, so you can see from this that that really where we have hurt the most is not so much the extra expenses, it's, uh, it's the loss of net revenue. Any questions on any of this? Well, related to COVID, uh, is our payer mix on COVID patients different from our normal payer mix? I do not believe so, but I have not actually looked at the specific payer mix for just COVID-related patients. Uh, one of the beautiful things is with Epic, we have uh, what is called a slicer dicer, and we have a business uh, intelligence team that is really getting good at running reports. So this is something I can ask them to run for us. Uh, I know they, they still have quite a backlog because we're all keeping them busy, but um, we can, uh, I can put that request in and have them run it. I'm just wondering also, do, do we have, do commercially insured patients, COVID patients come to our ED? We do have commercial patients that come. Um, uh, ambulance, you know, may bring them here. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we our commercial payer mix is very small, so right. uh, I don't know that we were the first choice <laughs> when a when a patient has a choice. Um, so, from my perspective, I'd be surprised if it was that much different. But I have not looked at that. So, Kim, uh, this is Gassan. Uh, just uh, we have seen uh, commercial patient during the surge coming, uh, especially to San Leandro Alameda Hospital, but more to San Leandro. Yeah, and we, we I think we typically have a, a more commercial patients at those facilities. So So that is my presentation.
Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Uh, we have a couple more items on our agenda. We have to get through our COO report and we have an action item. Um, and I don't know if this action item is necessary for us to complete tonight. I do think it's important for us to hear from our COO, even if it's in an abbreviated fashion, we do have another special board meeting anticipated to start in one minute. Uh, so bearing well, that well, in mind, go ahead, Mike. So yeah, so just just to be clear, you know, the, the scheduled time for this meeting is 5.30 to 7.30. Uh, the, the full board meeting is scheduled to begin immediately after this meeting. The the calendar invite said 7 because I did not know what time this meeting was going to end. And what I didn't want to do is have a situation where this meeting ended at 7, but the next meeting, you know, was not scheduled to start till 7.30. So... Uh, just take that into account. You all can manage the time, you know, as you will. But you know, there's there's no hard stop at seven, you know, p.m. Because, but understand that yes, that next meeting is on tap. So, thank you for clarifying that. How do you feel, uh, Trustee Splendorio? Um, yeah, thanks for the clarification, Mike. Goes full speed ahead. All right, take it away, Luis. Excellent. Thank you, uh, trustees. Uh, and I appreciate the opportunity. I know that Kim has provided a very comprehensive report for finances. And uh, I, I hear you all loud and clear that we'll, we'll certainly do some work to, to further refine that and to also break it down to ensure that we have a shared understanding of all that work. Um, one of the things that I, I'd like to do here and part of your package, uh, we every every month you'll hear a report uh, that drills down a little deeper and gives you a sense of what's happening within the operations of the health system, uh, specifically within our business units. And so this month starting, you know, January, we have our acute care services, including John George, which is part of our acute care. Uh, and I've asked our chief nurse executive, chief administrative officer, Janet McCannis, to walk us through that executive summary that is part of your package. Equally in the package, you have some uh, dashboards. Uh, these dashboards are all, uh, you know, the key indicators, the key performance indicators that have been identified by our leaders as we're tracking, uh, you know, their, their specific business units broken down by site. Uh, specifically for the acute care. And then we also look at ambulatory and post-acute. And so all of those dashboards are there in the package for you for your review as we continue to track those every single month. Um, but the report that we'll be hearing today is specific to the acute care services, uh, meaning Highland, uh, San Leandro, and Alameda Hospital, and John George. And so we'll, uh, you know, give you a, a high-level sense. That, you know, the intent here is to ensure that our dashboards are directly aligned with uh, our True North metric dashboard for our health system. And so what steps are we taking? What work are we doing to ensure that uh, we are meeting our, our performance and that we're, uh, you know, ensuring, you know, the high quality and safe delivery of care. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Janet McCannis to walk us through the report. Uh, and certainly uh, we will answer any questions you may have and we'll go through that to uh, hopefully give us back a little bit of time here. But uh, certainly we'll be open to any questions you may have. So Janet. Thanks, Luis. Uh, good evening, trustees. I am a fast talker, so I'm sure we will be able to get some time back. So um, I'm going to share my screen. I did not do this last time, but there's a couple of graphs. And so uh, bear with me and I will uh, attempt to grab my screen. Hang on one sec. Did I do it? <laughs> We are seeing your screen, Janet. It looks like your file explorer open. Okay, hang on. Let me see if it'll open. There. Can you see that now? Yes, we can see it. Okay. 
So I'm going to just walk through this. I will pause at uh, um, uh, various times, and then we'll have questions uh, at the end if people have them. But don't don't be afraid to jump in. So uh, again, this is all acute care, Alameda, San Leandro, Highland, and including John George. Uh, they are as acute as any of our hospitals for sure. So. Um, there's a number of metrics, tons of metrics actually that we measure uh, every month, um, but these are some uh, key ones that we keep our, our finger on the pulse and that we report out during these uh, SBU reportings. And so uh, this is for the operations period ending uh, much to mirror Kim's report, uh, October, November of 2020, um, but we've, we've uh, you know, got some uh, updated things, but I've stuck to those timeframes. So, one of the measures that we really look at and that we've had issues with in the past and really have drilled down on uh, is our length of stay. And so that means that the quicker we get patients processed safely through the continuum, the more beds we open and the more uh, we're able to uh, give our patients what they need. So the observed to expected length of stay is compiled with all campuses together. Uh, and we're exceeding the target with an overall 1.04 versus a target of 1.10. Um, another measure that's key for us is border hours, and we measure Highland different than San Leandro and Alameda. Highland typically holds patients in their ED for placement uh, to the inpatient. That's not true of San Leandro and Alameda, and so for them, we measure border hours for behavioral health. So um, for Highland for the month of November alone, the total border hours were 4,154, uh, 4,154 largely due to a lack of uh, availability for inpatient beds with some issues primarily with ICU patients. And we'll, we'll get into that uh, in terms of staffing a little bit further in the report. For San Leandro, the numbers were dramatically improved and I'll talk about why in a second, but um, for uh, behavioral health for uh, San Leandro was 9.5 hours and Alameda four hours for the month of November. The reasons for this is John George has done a tremendous amount of work with managing their throughput uh, their census, their discharges, uh, and the number of times that they're on diversion. Uh, so diversion means that they close their PES or their psychiatric emergency department. Um, and that doesn't allow for anyone in the community, not even us to uh, uh, admit patients to um, the facility. So they've done, uh, if you look at the graph, it's gone up and down, and then they finally got it nailed in around August and September, and they're sitting right now at about zero. So that means there are very few days or hours that they close the PES to admissions, um, and that's allowed uh, San Leandro and Alameda to process these patients and then get them moved over to John George as appropriate. The other big um, thing that's uh, come due to the pandemic is that before any patients are admitted to John George, uh, they have to be tested for COVID. And so the rapid COVID test has allowed us to process patients in about an hour um, to get results back and then we can streamline and speed the transfer and admission up. So um, kudos to John George, they've done a phenomenal amount of work. This was not the case last year, uh, even without the pandemic. And so I, I wanted you to be able to see that graph. Avoidable days overall are unfavorable uh, by about by 71, uh, largely due to placement issues and dialysis patients needing chairs in the community. So um, we're exploring a Davida navigator who is a uh, a person from DeVita that you bring on board, uh, they help with dialysis placement in the community. And those, those conversations will resume again in the next couple of weeks. The big uh, um, strength for us was uh, Richard Espinoza from Post Acute opened up a COVID transition unit at Fairmont campus. 
that allows us to, or anyone actually in the community, to send patients to him that are either positive COVID or PUIs, uh, where they um, can incubate and process uh, at that Fairmont campus rather than sit in an inpatient facility um, when they really don't need to be there. And so that has allowed us the numbers uh, are pretty staggering in how many he's processed since opening the end of October uh, through now. It's gradually been going up um, and it's, it's helped us tremendously. Uh, readmission rate is meeting target with 11.6 versus the target of 12.2. Uh, last time I reported out, Alameda was much higher at 14.3. Uh, they've identified that they've got some issues with CHF patients needing wraparound services in the community. They've done a deep dive on that and their numbers come down to 12.98. So they're trending in the right direction and we will continue to, to stay on top of that. San, San Leandro conversely has bumped up uh, to 13.3%, but they take the majority of the transfers from the Highland ED if we're impacted with throughput uh, and they're seeing uh, patients that are um, uh, a lot more um, uh, need dependent, I guess you would say. So they're having some, some additional challenges with discharging those patients that they didn't have before. So we're looking at that to see if, uh, you know, there's some services that we can offer that would allow for their throughput to improve, but um, that's new for them. Labor productivity is really the story of this whole report. And so I, I, I think Kim alluded to that uh, um, uh, quite extensively and I just wanna drill down for the acute cares, what that meant for us. And so um, overall we've been tracking and I'll, I'll bring the, the graph up to the top so you can see it, but uh, really looking at the number of those uh, FMLA or FTEs that we gave the 12 week leaves to. Um, so if we look from uh, uh, August, September, Oct or July, August, September, October, uh, the total number of those leaves is 295 FTE to the tune of $3.08 million. So the leaves are 12 weeks in duration. Uh, we had a lot of staff take advantage of that when the schools closed and people didn't really know what to do. Um, we had a bit of a lull. Uh, and then in November and December, we uh, you know, started noticing that those leaves would end the end of December. Uh, and we saw a dramatic spike where um, a lot of staff decided that they would take advantage of that before it ended at the end of the year. And so um, for Alameda, uh, the leave rate was at about 13%, San Leandro 13.8, Highland 14.5. And then just before Thanksgiving, we saw a pretty dramatic increase across the system with leaves going up to about 20% 20, 20 of our staff taking leave. So um, that was pretty impactful at a time when we were starting to see the pandemic and social distancing uh, play a, a role in having the numbers bump back up. The other thing that we saw were that travel nurses uh, were exhausted. They had worked across the country for the whole year. Um, they were willing to or wanting to take the holidays off. And so even though we offered the highest rate at $200 an hour, which was recommended by our, our uh, contractor, we did not have anyone want to take that. And so um, we found ourselves in a position where um, we paid people a lot of overtime. We really had to, to make sure that managers were ready and available to step in. Uh, and we actually had to cap a few units. So um, that, that, that's, the, that's the story. Uh, as, as Kim said and, and Dovecchio said, a lot of that staff have come back January 1st. And so um, we breathed a huge sigh of relief. And then what we're seeing as well is that the travelers uh, are starting to want to come back to work. So we're starting to be able to get some travelers in our key positions like ED and IC. Can I ask a question, Janet? 
uh, job that went took took advantage of the COVID leaves, um, and uh, uh, but they were able to cover that with a lot of uh, extra overtime. Trustee Splendario, did you have a question? Yes, ma'am. Um, could could you explain what you mean by labor productivity? Because those the, the things you just said don't connote to labor pr productivity in my world. So could you explain how that means that labor is more productive? Or maybe I'm being so, too literal yeah, or too so stupid? That, no, no, you're not being too stupid or little. But that's just the heading for this. And so uh, I can change that going forward. Um, I talked a little bit further down here about productivity and how we manage that. But this is really the financial impact, I guess, of labor is what that should be titled. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay. Um, Janet, I had a question. Does the, will this, uh, do you think this will impact our patient satisfaction scores? Is that something we should be thinking about? Like when we come back to QPSC next month and look at what that, um, what our satisfaction scores have been with, you know, not having um, our staff and having temps. Yeah, so uh, great, great points. Um, you know, we, we are definitely tracking that. And uh, the one thing that may throw a wrench into that is we changed how we measure. Uh, so we were, uh, you know, sending sending uh, mail out to people to do their uh, patient satisfaction. And with the demographic that we see with Alameda Health, some of those people don't get mail. They live in their vehicles or they live in shelters. And so uh, we did see a drop uh, in our percentage and we're trying to figure out whether that's attributed to um, you know, the staff changes where we used uh, uh, temporary staff or, or we were short staff, um, or whether it was just the way we were getting the survey out. So I, I will say that the staff that continued to come to work gave exemplary care. And so we did not see uh, a disgruntled bunch of staff. We did not see staff that felt like they didn't wanna be there, that they were um, you know, the only ones holding up everything. So we, we, we did see staff that gave uh, they gave their all every day and worked, you know, some days up to 16 hours. And so um, that's a, that's definitely a metric to track, but that's a very good question. Uh, so it, when we, when we look at uh, all of this, so this is, this has been an impact to us, but in terms of productivity, um, Trustee Splendera, we, we track this very closely. And so the managers are on weekly productivity calls with the VPs at each site uh, to redrew, uh, review and address productivity. Um, we, uh, you know, found before that when we didn't focus on it, our sitter use crept up. Uh, we had observers that watched the staff go in and out of rooms to make sure they were donning and doffing correctly. We were able to eliminate those and, and bring our productivity back under control. Uh, we review the need for staffing every four hours and we flex down accordingly to the volumes. Um, so that's how we're managing that. And then once a month, uh, we all come together with uh, uh, all the dollars uh, tallied. Um, and then we're able to look at who's got opportunities in terms of overtime, in terms of staffing where uh, they might be using an RN to, to, to manage the telemetry uh, banks and, and watch the telemetry. So um, it's really about the appropriate use of staff um, and then how do we manage uh, flexing when the volumes go down. And so, um, you know, I think now that our staff are back, January 1st, we'll have a, a better ability to really manage that. And then uh, we've started discussions to have uh, a centralized staffing office, which will manage all of the sites, follow all of the uh, union contracts appropriately, um, and then really get one central staffing office managing everyone's staffing so that we don't have uh, you know, people automatically offering overtime because you're the person that happens to be there. Uh, we are tightening up uh, many, many things in terms of our staffing. And I think by centralizing it, 
uh, it'll give us a lot more um, ability to manage that. Uh, in terms of missed meals and breaks, this is a report that comes out to uh, leaders monthly. Uh, these are uh, you know, metrics we want to look at to make sure that our staff are getting the breaks and the meals uh, that they're entitled to. Um, and just by managing it and assigning breaks and making sure that we have break relief, uh, we've seen a 40% reduction year over year um, just by bringing that to the forefront. Uh, the ED at Highland remained an outlier and with their volumes down, uh, they are in a much better position now with new leadership that they have um, to really be able to, to manage those breaks and, and you know, tell people you need to take a break. You know, prior it was like, oh, I don't need a break. Uh, and then they would claim a missed break. And so we wanna make sure for our staff safety uh, that they really take breaks and that we're able to offer those breaks. Um, our hours per patient day I alluded to is not uh, meeting target, uh, which again indicates the appropriate use of staff and the lack of flexing. And so, um, you know, there are times when we have sitters and we don't have enough CNAs, we have to use an RN to do that. Uh, we have ED techs now cross-trained to be able to cover as monitor techs rather than use RNs. And so um, I think that we'll, we'll start to see uh, some bang for our buck on that as well. We also uh, graduated a class of 15 new grads to help with open positions. Uh, that will help with our staffing so that we can have the appropriate staff there. Uh, and then at, or Alameda rather is looking at a telemetry utilization pilot uh, where they're really reviewing which patients need to be on telemetry or on cardiac monitoring so that we can change our ratios to five to one if it's not necessary versus the four to one where we have more appropriate staffing that way. Uh, the one thing that really jumps out is the number of one-to-ones in the ICU with the COVID acuity. Uh, a lot of these patients need what's called proning, so they're, they're, they're flipped uh, uh, on, their, on their stomach. Um, it takes a lot of additional care for some of these patients on their drips and just turning them and positioning them and keeping them comfortable. So, um, you know, we're hoping with, uh, as we get the vaccine out and get things moving and get this under control that uh, our, our need for one-to-one -one care in the ICU will, will drop as well. For John George, the, the DON has done a fantastic job of managing daily productivity. Um, they have a sufficient number of mental health specialists now who do the one-to-ones, uh, who round on the staff so that RNs are not doing that and they're focused on patient care. Uh, and then they really connect and, and look at those one-to-ones every four hours and connect with physicians to make sure that that patient truly does need to be a one-to-one. -one. So they've, they've seen some, some pretty significant uh, reductions with that. Uh, overtime hours are up primarily due to COVID. And so when staff are on the FMLA leaves, uh, they often notice us, uh, for example, on a Wednesday that I'm gonna start taking the leave on a Thursday. That doesn't give us any opportunity at all to, to get a traveler in if we were able to get travelers. Uh, and we cover that with overtime because we need to keep the units open and, and to patient care. Uh, the other way is true as well. So patient or staff may say, I'm gonna come back or they're due back on a Friday, uh, and then they extend their leave and tell us on a Friday, and we have no way to cover that until we can get travelers in. So um, again, with, with all those people coming back to work, we should be able to manage the overtime much better. Um, for John George, uh, they uh, made some changes in how they schedule their staff. They've hired to fill their open positions. They don't schedule staff pre-schedule for overtime. They've got their per diems or SANS as we call them here, uh, picking up more shifts and working to the number of required shifts for the contract. Uh, and then just improve scheduling management with the managers taking over the schedules on the units rather than the staffing office doing that has shown them some 
um, some good results. So any questions on this before I move on to the, the revenue? All right. Uh, charge management, Kim uh, talked about. So initially our revenue, uh, our charge management, the number of or the percentage of charges posted within two days uh, was dismal. Uh, and they they worked very hard at that, put key people in place. Uh, the VPs have been instrumental in working with Kim's team uh, and it's at 92.8% overall. And so uh, San Leandro's at 88%, Alameda 81 and Highland at 93. So. Um, really seeing some some good results from that. The clinical teams have worked closely with RevCycle, uh, and I think we're only going to go up from here. So um, much better for that. Another metric that we track is OR uh, room turnover time. So that's wheels in, wheels out. Uh, the target is 30 minutes. Uh, this metric, we have a little bit of work to do at Highland, where it's sitting at 45 minutes. Uh, San Leandro excuse me, San Leandro has made the most progress at 26 minutes and Alameda is very close at 31 minutes. Uh, Highland uh, has, you know, the bigger trauma cases and the longer surgeries. Um, so they're working to reduce their times and become more efficient that way. Uh, the dyads partner well, so the OR physicians partner with the uh, nurse dyad in those areas and we're starting to see some, some movement. Uh, purchase services, Kim again alluded to this. Uh, they've been favorable, but unfavorable for some units in Highland, mostly due to laundry costs because of the extra linens, scrubs, and, and gowns for COVID patients. So um, we're working uh, through that. Contracted staffing, we had contracted interim leaders in our OR, our AD, um, and in our uh, peri or um, our PACU department. We have secured uh, permanent leadership in all of those areas, and the only contractor that's left is the respiratory therapy director, uh, and we are looking to wrap that contract up in the next 60 days, so we should see a dramatic decrease in those numbers as well. And the materials and supplies are under budget because of the decreased uh, patient volumes, but I think, uh, you know, December, January, we're starting to fill up, and we'll see um, some, some changes with that. So uh, just in summary, I, I just, you know, want to reiterate that 2020 has been a year that we may never see the likes again, but uh, there is a lot of positive that's come from this as well. But um, it's taxed our staff at all levels. It's stretched us to think of new and creative ways to manage the challenges of budget constraints, staffing issues, joint commission surveys, in addition to the daily rigors of the pandemic. Through it all, though, I couldn't be more proud of the staff. They've remained committed to our mission to care for our patients and to care for each other. And I think that's last part of caring for each other uh, you see every day that you're in our, our organization um, you know when we started this journey nine months ago uh, it, it i reflect back and our patient or our staff were so anxious and overwhelmed and afraid and understandably so but today they take it in stride it's you know we have the highest number of covid patients that we've had since the pandemic started um, we don't have the anxiety we have that outpouring of support and love from our patients or from our staff to our patients and vice versa. Um, and they continue to come to work every day despite being exhausted and at the breaking point. And so we have an extremely good uh, team of staff here that we need to, to recognize. The, the big positive fortune that we've had recently is that the COVID vaccine came to light. And as of today, we vaccinated over 2,500 of our staff um, which uh, we're starting this week on round two, which is the booster staff or booster shots that come 21 days later. Um, and then we'll start to offer this to wave B and wave C. And once those are done, we'll be able to turn that vaccine, which we've got thousands of, of vaccines. 
uh, over to the community so we can start giving that to EMS, fire, um, you know, uh, uh, police departments, teachers, uh, essential workers out in the community. And so uh, we're really working through this to get this processed as quickly as we can for our staff, but also to be able to support the community as well. So um, again, in, in summary, I look forward to 2021. Uh, I've got a solid nursing leadership team in place that are high, are, you know, hard workers. Um, and the goal is to become a highly reliable organization that provides exceptional care. So I'll pause there um, and just see if there's any questions. Um, one question, what is our COVID census right now and what percentage of our total non-John George census is that roughly? So there is no COVID at John George. Uh, today, uh, the numbers this morning between the three sites, Alameda, San Leandro and Highland, we were at 56. So pretty evenly spread. Highland had uh, 20. I think San Leandro had uh, 16 and uh, Alameda had um, 17. And I didn't do the math in my head, but it's some, somewhere pretty close with that. So Alameda lagged for the longest time where they had single digits for a long time. Uh, and then just in the last week and a half or so, boom, they, they, they blew up. And so um, our ICUs at San Leandro and Alameda are most impacted right now because they're small. Um, but they're doing an exceptional care of caring for patients. The ICU at Highland actually only has four COVID patients right now. So they're, they're fuller, but they're full with trauma and things that happen over the holidays. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. Welcome. Thank you, Janet. So Trustee Esteen, that's our operations report. Unless there's any other questions related to the dashboards, um, uh, I certainly turn it back over to you. Thank you so much. That was a wonderful use of time. <laughs> I told you I talk fast. <laughs> you got it done. Um, so now we need to move into an action item. Yeah. And, and uh -huh. trustee, if I could just break in here, I, yeah, I just wanted to give a couple of uh, prefatory you know, comments on the, uh, the contract approval section. Uh, and one thing I will point out, just sort of given the time that we're at now in the next meeting, you know, typically the finance committee recommends or reviews these contracts and then recommends approval to the full board um, there. And that has been the practice that was developed, you know, with the last finance committee and the last board. Uh, the, uh, the, the board itself actually approves the contract at its next meeting. So um, they're, you know, one option from time to time that we availed ourselves, you know, if, you know, it was a timing issue is that the contract would be presented directly to the full board um, and approved there without necessarily going to the finance committee. So that's one option available to you if you don't feel that you have sufficient time to review this as you would want to this evening. For the contracts, you know, in the packet, um, you have a summary which basically outlines, you know, why we're uh, proposing to do this contract, what the impacts of it are, what the key terms of the contract are, uh, and then what the financial impact of the contract. And, you know, generally, um, you know, the, re the review is to determine, you know, whether or not, you know, there's makes sense information with regard to those uh, particular topics. The other report that you have in there, which is significant, is the lifetime spend report. So under our policies, contracts of more than a million dollars need to come to the board of trustees for approval. Uh, we realized that we were getting to the point that, you know, we had a number of vendors that we were spending more than a million dollars with. And instead of bringing all contracts to them, the policy that was adopted is that, you know, if a contract was for more than a million dollars or if a spend with one vendor was going to top 
more than a million dollars in one fiscal year, then that would come forward. Once a vendor goes over a million dollars, subsequent contracts, which are less than a million dollars, would just be reported to you in the chart that you have there so that you could sort of keep track of what was being spent with them. So so that's what you have. So so with that background, I'll you know let you all decide whether or not you feel you have sufficient time to consider and review this. Um, and if you'd like to just defer and have this put on the full board agenda as a full action item there as opposed to a consent item, that would be an option available to you as well too. Thank you for that summary. I think it's going to be important for us to revisit the uh, contract lifetime spending um and how that process works because uh it might be important for this new committee to understand what those contracts look like um for this particular contract that we're looking at today i don't know if uh, my fellow trustees have had a chance to review it seems like it's um pretty straightforward it's also related directly to covid and lab uh lab test so you know it feels very important um it says that the the timing is to to begin on february 1st um trustees mm -hmm. if i could just give you some background uh fulgent is a vendor we brought in when we were pressed in april to do mandatory testing in the SNF environment for both employees and patients. Mm -hmm. um, it is both a testing vendor and they also provide reporting that we need to provide to the state. I do not expect us to reach this full spend amount. I expect it to come in house. We lacked a sufficient analyzer at the time uh, COVID really took place and we needed to start testing a lot of employees. We have an analyzer now, we're working on Epic this contract is to ensure that we don't exceed the spend under the under the description that Mike gave you earlier. So we would we'll start to move this work in house, do it in our own labs, and I'd expect the cost to drop off. It is an as needed only contract. So if we don't spend the dollars, then obviously we're not going to run up against the the maximum that we're putting in front of you now. And we have a thirty day out in the contract. So it's really there as a safety net in case anything comes up as we implement the Epic module uh, or the the use of Epic for this purpose and we start to do the testing in-house. When we when we did this, there was a demand for about 1,200 tests a week, uh, and we could not uh, test more than 700 uh, patients a week or, or uh, complete 700 tests a week. We can now do su sufficient number of tests in our own lab, and so I'd expect this to drop off. Uh, but it's really there as a safety net so we don't exceed the, the spend that we originally intended. Great, that was gonna be my question whether or not we had capability to do this in-house yeah. uh, any questions from the committee yeah it was just a volume issue initially but we think we've solved that and we'll start to move it in-house but we want to keep the safety net until we've got everything up and running and working appropriately in epic and in the lab yeah is this is, is this contract within the budget uh that was that's been approved no I, none of this outside the budget yeah None of the COVID items uh, that are COVID specific were budgeted for. So this testing uh, was uh, put forth by uh, California Department of Public Health and uh, Alameda County Public Health Department as a requirement. We needed to be able to do the testing uh, regardless of budgeting on our employees and on patients. Uh, any outbreak in a skilled nursing facility or, or any single case is considered an outbreak and that required to, to test all staff uh, on a weekly basis and more cases requires to test staff twice weekly. And so we were going to incur the expense, but it was not budgeted for because it was not foreseen as a requirement uh, from the county or the state. 
you anticipate any uh, funding sources to cover this? Uh, I would defer to Kim on that, whether we expect anything through the CARES Act or any other funding. I think we can consider this uh, COVID-specific uh, expenditures, but I couldn't say whether or not we'll see any um, revenue or support from the, either the state or the federal government's government cost. <coughs> Excuse me. How much are other uh, public systems spending on for similar services? Uh, I couldn't answer that question. I, d I don't have that data. Uh, so it is an all facility letter. All facilities are supposed to give a plan uh, last month about uh, having access to test older employees. It came actually from uh, the governor as a requirement. So we call that an unfunded mandate? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, one of the questions that I'm uh, curious about, and I know we're going to have to discuss this at a later time, and I may need to just talk with you offline, I'm not sure, Kimberly. It sounds like the budget did not anticipate COVID spending um, in a realistic way. It didn't anticipate uh, the COVID drop-off in services or, you know, which boggles the mind. And I'm curious, how do we make adjustments for that as we go? Do we even need to make adjustments as we go? So yeah, we can we can talk more about that. So in the forecast, when we when we forecast forward, we forecast uh, any any items that are not in the budget. So um, uh, we've we've got a, a a deck that we'll show you for this next next presentation. Maybe we can talk you know before that, uh, um, Trustee Esteen. Um, yeah, so. When we did the budget, we had gotten, you know, you know, some $28 million of CARES Act funding. We didn't have any idea, you know, how much more funding we were going to get, how much longer this pandemic was going to go. So we made the decision that we would not try to have a crystal ball and guess. Because once you do your budget and you've made all those guesses, if you're wrong, you're comparing against something that was could be arbitrary, really. So we just decided that we we would go ahead and budget based on our historical um, uh, run rate, if you will, and then that way we could report any variances. And at the time we made the decision, the CARES Act funding was enough to cover our costs. So and it was uh, allowed for loss of net revenue. So we were going on those assumptions at the time. That makes sense. Trustee Banerjee, did you have a question? No, I, I was, um, when um, Tony, you were talking about the um, uh, this contract, I was like, yes, we will be seeing a surge. Like, this is a surge upon a surge. So having the the contract with Fulgen um, is important. And so um, I'm okay if we have to move that forward. Yeah, I would like so, to entertain a motion. We'll vote next week. Uh, so... Just to clarify, Mike, you said that we would move this forward into the full budget, into the full board meeting, rather. But today we would recommend to do that. You're on mute. You know, basically, you could take action to recommend this to the full board, or you could defer action on this with the request that it be presented directly to the full board. Uh, I think I'm okay if someone wants to make a motion then we can take action in either direction. I'll make, a motion. I'll make a motion to 
uh, take no action and forward this to the full board at the next regularly scheduled board meeting. A second. Roll call vote. Roll call vote. Yes. Um, Trustee Banerjee. Yes. Trustee Esteem. Yes. Trustee Fox. Yes. Yes. Trustee Splendoria. Yes. So the motion was approved to defer action to the full board. Correct. Thank you. All right. I think that that concludes our uh, agenda items. And now we can uh, make plans for the future meetings. Mm -hmm. If anybody needs to bring anything up, if any trustees want to make any special comments. Nope. All right. Anyone want to entertain a motion to adjourn? So move. Just a question. Do we need to sign in on a different link for the board meeting? Yes, you do. Okay. All right. There is a separate calendar invite for that. Okay. All right. See you guys in two minutes. Yeah. Thanks, all.